Cultivating Place is made possible in part by generous support from the Caddo Shaw Foundation. And in honor of Valentine's Day coming up and Black History Month in progress, settle in, listeners, for this episode. It's a treat, full of love and history and where we can all grow from here. This is Cultivating Place. I'm Jennifer Jewell. Love is already a theme in the work of Cultivating Place, to be sure. But with last week's loving work around the restoration of historic apple orchards in southwestern Colorado, and this week's episode that I think of as the love letters of Abra Lee, love letters, love stories, and loving gardeners is an explicit theme here this month. In celebration of Black History Month in progress and Valentine's Day coming up, this week we are rejoined in conversation by Abra Lee, horticulturalist, graduate of the Longwood Fellows Program in Public Horticulture, scholar and consultant under the name of Conquered the Soil, and now the Director of Horticulture at Oakland Cemetery in downtown Atlanta. Abra, it has been way too long. Welcome back to Cultivating Place. Thank you, Jennifer. I'm excited to be here. I love you so much. So this is going to be a lot of fun. I think it is going to be so much fun because you have so much going on uh, these last couple of years, Abra, and I think everybody is going to be really interested in all of the different paths you are cultivating right now. For those people who might not be familiar with you and your work, can you please reintroduce yourself the way you like to be introduced and maybe give a, a brief version of what plants represent or the role they play in your everyday life, Abra? My background journey, the best way to describe me is as a Southerner who has had a very, I would say, a, a career of reinvention in horticulture. Uh, there's many things I've done from being working in a greenhouse as a student to landscape companies, to be in a city arborist in the parks department, to working as an airport landscape manager, to being a fellow at Longwood, which you mentioned, to running a business, and to my newest role as director of horticulture at Oakland Cemetery, a beautiful Victorian garden cemetery in downtown Atlanta. And plants, to me, mean the ability to tell stories, uh, particularly love stories, and that's really what mm. my research and scholarship centers around. And I don't even know if that was a short way to explain who I am, but that's really who I am. A little bit of everything and uh, all tucked in under storytelling and love. I love it. I love that. And um, and it's so true of everything I know about your life and the way horticulture is folded into everything and or you are folded into everything horticultural. But first, let's go back just a little bit. Let's start with kind of, you know, remind people where you were born and raised, and then bring us up to the philosophy behind the name you have given your kind of overarching work, um, especially online, which is Conquer the Soil. Sure. My upbringing, born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, hardcore Southerner will dial my Southern Hill, and um, I spent my weeks 
in the city of Atlanta, growing up around trees and parks. My dad was director of parks uh, for the city of Atlanta for many years of my childhood and spending my weekends um, going down to Barnesville, Georgia, the dirt road country, an hour south of Atlanta. Lamar County represent, if anybody from Lamar County happens to be listening, um, <laughs> and spending it on the farm that my great-grandfather and my great-grandmother, Shy Few and Matty Few, uh, bought and built from scratch. And by the time I was a child, my Aunt Lois, who was one of my grandmother's sisters, was running that farm. And we're talking cows, chicken coops, smoked cows, pot belly stove that you still stuck wood in, mm-hmm. um, a... Um, yard and the garden was in the yard and the yard was on the farm just a real true deep south farm upbringing and those two worlds being in Atlanta which was a city on the rise with black I would just say the word isn't even black excellence I would just say black economic uh, uh, opportunity political opportunities just options just Mm. unlimited options along with the balance of to me, Barnesville was the old country. I think that's what really helped me understand and find my way in horticulture. Mm, yeah. And remind people why you named your business under which you are a writer, you are a speaker, you are a consultant, and now you have um, you know, taken on other roles as well, and you've had other roles in the past, such as being the head of horticulture uh, at an airport, et cetera. Why did you call your own personal umbrella work Conquer the Soil, Abra? I called my work Conquer the Soil. I was doing some reading. My mother is a uh, retired educator and also an um, incredible historian. And she just spent her lifetime reading books, building a library. And one of the books that she recommended to me was The Souls of Black Folks by W.B. Du Bois. And reading that book one day and just understanding his words written, and I think in like 1901, 1920, I can't remember, early 1900s, let's just say that, mm-hmm. and how relevant they were today. There is a chapter in the book, and uh, Dr. W.B. Du Bois, um, who is a Black historian scholar, the first Black PhD to graduate from Harvard, talked about the gifts that the enslaved Africans brought to the Americas, which was the gift of story and song, the gift of spirit and the gift of strength and brawn, which he described as our ability to conquer the soil. Mm-hmm. And when I read those words, I've said this before, I probably said it the last time we talked, it felt like they rose off the page and I said, that's it. That's what the name mm-hmm. of my company will be. And that's mm-hmm. how I knew it. Cause I understood the power in what he was saying. Um, and yeah. it wasn't in a way, a language that was meant to be, uh, abusive towards mother nature or the environment. He was just saying like, this is the gift that they brought their spirit, mm-hmm. their energy, their spirituals. It was their brain that had the ability to conquer the soil of America and build this great land for free, no doubt. So that is where that came from. And it just, it was so empowering for me. And it is every day that I read it. Yeah. Yeah. For free and at great cost, right? For sure. But let's go from there. So when we last spoke, you had been accepted into Longwood, a sort of preeminent horticultural training for young, not even young, for for people who are interested in progressing their careers to be in the field of public horticulture, wherever that may be. 
And it is, you know, it is something of a great honor to be accepted into the program. And you went into it really right on the brink of the COVID-19 shutdowns and everything, as I recall. But so bring us up to that. Tell us about um, moving from the public horticultural work you had been doing into the Longwood Fellowship. And then we're going to dig into the heart of our conversation, which is essentially where you have gone since then, which is in a whole lot of very generative directions. When I started at Longwood Gardens in their Leadership and Public Horticulture Fellowship Program, that was June of 2019. And I had before then, um, left a job as an extension agent with the University of Georgia Extension Service. And with Longwood, that was certainly, um, I talked about the many reinventions of my career. And that one took me not just into reinvention mode, it changed my life, honestly, overnight. It it did. And um, with the Leadership and Public Horticulture Fellowship, what Longwood's goal is, is to build leaders in the world of public, I know I'm stating what I'm saying, but it, it's real. And people that can come out here and advocate for public gardens, people that can come out here and open doors, real doors, people who can give people opportunity, mentorship, um, people that are willing to take risk, people that are willing to say yes and say no if you have to. And Longwood gave me so much, um, it gave me a level of confidence that is unshakable in this moment. And I don't say that in a, uh, an arrogant way. I say that in a way where it's what you need to succeed at a level where you believe that you can also change people's lives. So the way they were able to change my life, I've been able to pay that forward tenfold um, with people since then. So some of the things we go through, and this is probably the most boring part I'm going to say, but it's not boring. It's just <laughs> what it is, is um, strategic planning and working with boards and finance and, I mean, but but things that matter, appearance mm, and, and working yeah. with a stylist, because if you're going to be a leader, you have to be the whole package, right? Yeah. Understanding your personality and how to work that in a room and things that I think that we hear or read or maybe practice and you're living it there. And what I especially appreciate um, is the the group that I certainly feel mentored me the most there, um, Tamara Fleming, who was my boss, but I have to say their names, Paul Redman the president along with Sharon Loving, the vice president of horticulture there, Marnie Conley. And I forgot Marnie's new title, but uh, she was the VP of marketing at the time. And then Sarah Cathcart, who was the VP of education. And I mentioned them because what they did for me, they cut out the middleman in my life, Jennifer. There Mm. is no person that I feel in the world, and I mean world from here to New Zealand, to the moon and back, that I cannot have a conversation with, ask a question, get an answer to in the world of public horticulture. Mm. Um, and to take that middleman out of your life and say, you know what, you're, you're, you're at the top of the mountain and you're with us now and we got you. And it's just something that is, you can't put a dollar amount on that. And I want to say this, and I only probably have mentioned this once before in my life. I remember, um, being in Paul Redman's office one day, the president of Longwood and, not really wanting to quite accept my my place at the table, if you will, Jennifer, right? Still mm-hmm. saying, well, I'm an outsider. I'm from the South. I'm a Black woman in horticulture. Like, this will all go away. And Longwood is a posh place, y'all. It is posh. And not, 
posh and fake, like posh and genuine, it's the Longwood way. And we want beauty and luxury to be accessible to you and, and be normal and not be looked at at this unattainable thing. And I remember thinking, yeah, but I'm here for 13 months. It's going to go away. And and Paul was pretty much said to me, Abra, if you want to go back to what you were doing, we will support you. We we want you to, and he meant that. He didn't mean it in a, a, a halfway. He genuinely meant we will support you. Like if you feel like you might want to be an extension agent or want to go back to the parks department. And he also gave me the option. And if you want to accept that this is your life now, this access, this you being the person that can, as my old boss told me that I don't make the calls, I take the calls, right? Where people want to reach out to you and they want to elevate you, then this is also your life and 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 you can accept that. And it really, after that conversation, once I accepted it, um, that's what really changed for me, being an insider, being at the table and being able to just give people the, I feel like the tools and resources they need to genuinely succeed. That is so empowering. And as you mentioned earlier, you have used this platform, this access, this knowledge, and you have shared it forward in multiple ways. So you are at Longwood, you are learning all of these skills and these new sort of paradigms of thinking, and you are strategizing about your future as a public horticulturalist and 2020 hits. And it hits with COVID and it hits with a lot of social justice, much needed social justice chaos. Take us to where Abra Lee was and what you do from there, Abra. I was still at Longwood and I was doing what they call the field placement. So I talked about these leadership um, salons and um, classes that Longwood push you through. And it's intense. We're living together and working together, six of us, six women, and at, at least in my cohort, six women. And mm -hmm. I was working at a place called Chateau Villandry in Villandry, France, um, mm -hmm. which is considered one of the most uh, or the world's most beautiful vegetable garden. And I was working there. Um, Longwood sent me there on my assignment and uh, working for a gentleman named Henri Carvalho, who owns the Chateau. And before COVID hit, like, this is from the last week in January to the first week in March of yeah. 2020. This is when all this mm -hmm. is happening. Yeah. So a few things happened. I thought up to that point at Longwood, I'm going to be the next Sharon Lovin, the next vice president of horticulture somewhere. And being in the middle of France with in a village, literally Villandry is a village, <laughs> like Snow White and the Seven Dwarves and the town bell <laughs> and the church is so cute. It's so beautiful. And it's the winter. So there's not tourists around. I had nothing but my thoughts, Jennifer. And I don't speak French. So I really was on my yeah. own and my feelings in a good way, not in a depressed way. And I realized I got to figure out what I want to do. And one of the things that I was doing uh, working at the uh, the Chateau was um, I was showing Henri some historical research that I was finding in the American papers about Chateau Villandry from the early 1900s. And it was things that as great as their records are, he didn't necessarily see what the Americans were saying. And his mm. uh, grand great-grandfather and great-grandmother bought the Chateau. And he, I remember him saying to me one day, you're, you're really good at this research thing. And he let me keep just doing historical research. And mm. I was realizing like, oh, I can just do research and exhibitions and education. And those were things that I had learned from, from Sarah Cathcart at Longwood. And that is when I realized what my new purpose in horticulture was. Um, you know, beyond beyond the storytelling and, and the research I do, which we'll get into. And 
as illuminating as that moment was, I got a call in the middle of the night and it was from Longwood and they said, pack your bags right now, get out the bed, you're coming home. They are gonna close the borders to the United States and you gotta get home now. So right. it was taken away just, in, just like that. Um, and I say taken away in air quotes because I am working at a chateau. I'm driving a great rental car. I'm, you know, six weeks in Villandry. Every weekend I'm driving to Paris and having a great time and learning about um, arts and culture there. So I, I taken away, I mean, it was such a privilege to, to be there. This is Cultivating Place. Abra Lee is an accomplished horticulturalist, scholar, consultant, and storyteller under the name of Conquer the Soil. She is now also a public garden leader at the historic Oakland Cemetery, a richly historied garden cemetery in downtown Atlanta. Stay with us, we'll be back for more of the love stories of Abra Lee. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Caddo Shaw Foundation funds initiatives that empower women and help preserve the planet through the intersection of environmental advocacy, social justice, and creativity. Hey, it's Jennifer. Okay, well, is this not the best Valentine you've had so far? I know it's mine. So happy Valentine's Day to all of you with this episode of Cultivating Place dedicated to all of you out there. I'm Jennifer Jewell. This is Cultivating Place, and we're back now to our conversation with horticulturalist and scholar Abra Lee of Conquer the Soil. She is also now the director of horticulture at Oakland Cemetery, a historic garden cemetery in downtown Atlanta. As we come back, Abra's continuing her story of where she went following the March 2020 shutdown for COVID-19 that suddenly brought her prematurely home from her fellowship fieldwork at France's Chateau Villandry, and in a few short months saw so much of our world transform into online streaming of work, learning, and gathering. Yes. Yeah, so Patrick McCray, who was in the fellowship at Longwood before me, was working for the Garden Conservancy at the time. He is now the vice president of horticulture at the Cummer Museum in Jacksonville. Stunning, beautiful garden. You got to get there mm. on the river. Long story short, Patrick invited me to be a speaker with the Garden Conservancy on a panel. And part of that, the woman moderating the panel was a woman named Joy Bailey Bryant, who is the president of a company called Lord Cultural Resources, the president mm -hmm their American office. And after I did that panel with Joy and discussed my work in horticulture and my team at airports, she hired me to be a consultant with Lore. And again, it changed my life overnight. And I said, oh, I, I guess I'm working for myself now. And it just, it was incredible because where I thought I was starting to feel a little, not panic, but just a little trepidation thinking, wow, I came out of this program Paul is saying, oh, you know, you never have to look back and I can't find a job. And what happened with me is that instead of me working at one garden, I got to work with all the gardens. So it was just one of those things that if you just 
really understand your purpose and believe it and trust it, everything else will unfold. And 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 the Lord, the universe knew that was where I needed to be. And and that's what uh, the next step was. So it was so exciting. And I got to work on exhibition, the uh, around the table exhibition for the New York Botanic Garden. Um, I got to do a lot of speaking and writing uh, related to my research in, in um, Black garden history, which I uh, refer to as my the love stories that I tell. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I did that for for two and a half years, and um, it was, I mean, it just I can't believe my life sometimes, and I really mean that. Um, it's just it's so exciting every day to to be in public horticulture and to be able to like you can't even. It's almost like a job where you um, there's no LinkedIn post for this, right? You just it's <laughs> it's something like. How do you explain that you work in the world of public gardens and cultural institutions? And it's a thing. And what I'm getting at, Jennifer, no one can tell you this as a child. So when I was at Barnesville and I was at the Atlanta airport and I was at Auburn, none of this was even on my radar because it's just at a level that you're living in the world of your dreams. And I'm saying this to your audience because I want them to believe in their purpose and know that it's real and it will and can happen for them. They just got to trust it and follow it. I'm yeah. a witness, truly. Yeah, amen. Right there, right there. And and I would say that almost every guest on my program is a witness, but yours is particularly vibrant at this exact moment, Abra, because one of the things that happens, you know, and 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 I can see this as we're talking, like your dad in the parks department, your mother as this just beautiful historian and bringing all of these things into you going into public horticulture and you are re- regrowing, revegetating, as it were, our our past so that we can all learn more from it. And you are doing this in some pretty profound ways with the research that you started there at Villandry. And then when you came back home and you started doing this speaking, your research got deeper and deeper and fuller and fuller. And I think that takes us beautifully into this current stage of your life in which you are a speaker, you still are a garden scholar and researcher. And Let's take some of your current projects and and unpack them a little so that people can see those seeds that were planted um, both in your childhood and at Longwood and at Bilandry. We can see those seeds germinating. Let's start maybe with your your research. Tell us about your research into specifically uh, the the role of Black women farmers in the floriculture space is that a is that a good place to start you think I think that's of course I think that's a good place to start (laughs) um my research in black garden history started in 2010 and I was um a landscape manager for Hartsfield Jackson Atlanta International Airport the landscape manager and I was young it wasn't the Aberly y'all hearing on this podcast where I'm like, my confidence is unshakable. I was, um, and I guess what I'm saying is that I don't feel like an imposter anymore. That's what I mean by that. Um, I know that I have earned my seat at the table and I'm okay with that. And I'm going to pull up a whole bunch of chairs because it feels good at the top. And you want your friends and people to be there, uh, your your friends and colleagues in public horticulture. But I say this because in 2010, I felt like an imposter. I was um, in my twenties. And I couldn't believe that I'd been given this opportunity to be landscape manager at the world's busiest airport. So it was the imposter syndrome of my youth and me not believing like, 
oh, well, if I'm in a meeting, but this person is double my age, then maybe they really know the right answer. And I don't just those doubts that you have when you really are like, I know, I know what I'm talking about on this landscape plan. And I shared that with my mom and I shared that with um, one of my garden mentors, a gentleman named Ryan Ganey. We were at his house, me, my mom and Ryan. And what his advice to me was to learn your garden history. And um, I thought it meant the garden history of the world. And my mama said, no, Avery, your garden history, where you come mm -hmm. from. Mm -hmm. And with that, she introduced me into this wonderful world of, guess what? Newsflash, you're not the first Black person to work at an <laughs> airport and do horticulture, and you won't be the last. And you want to know why? Because people, your people did it for decades and hundreds of years before you, and they did it at a high level, and they did it with a lot of love and a lot of expertise and skill. And she um, recommended that I go to the Atlanta History Center and start doing research. And one of the first people I learned about was an entomological artist named Charles William Costello, a Black man who drew entomology charts by hand, gorgeous charts by hand at Ohio State in the 1940s during the World War II era. And I was thinking, who knew that Black people, not even Black people, I didn't even know you could be an entomological artist. It wasn't right, even about right. Black. <laughs> and it just took me down this trail of Wormley Hughes at Monticello, Annie Mae Van Reed owning a five-acre nursery and greenhouse in Darlington, South Carolina, um, Bessie Weaver, the first Black florist west of the Mississippi in Kansas City, Blanche King Hurston, the sister-in-law of Zora Neale Hurston. And I only say that because I am a Zora Neale Hurston stan and I love to say her name, but Blanche King Hurston being a, an incredible, brilliant businesswoman and flower farmer that owned acreage and grew her own flowers for her florist and having her own chauffeur in Jacksonville. And so it just was, it was a rabbit hole that I have never gotten out of. I never will get, a, get out of it. And I felt like, oh, these are my real peers, right? I just, I felt like they were my friends. I feel like they feel like I know that they are legends of horticulture and they are people who worked in the field for decades and decades and decades of their life and succeeded and brought seats to the table and helped other women start businesses in the same towns, knowing that they were going to be competitors of theirs and knowing that there was enough gold in Babylon to share, right? That everybody can eat. And so it gave me the freedom to feel like, oh, now that I have access, I don't have to hoard. So it's almost it's almost poetic that my mom showed me that back in 2010, because when I finally got that, you know, never gone what they say face card don't decline that's what the kids say I'm like my public <laughs> garden access card does not decline I didn't feel like I had to hoard it and be right. cagey and I felt right. like you know what yeah I can share I can help you and and you want to and you want to do it because you saw that's what your ancestors did and they lifted people up as they mm -hmm. climbed um, which is a saying so it that is what that research did for me and it under and it helped me understand that for me to work at a high level, I needed to really love what I was doing. I realized, guess what? I'm not the world's best plants woman. I know my Southern landscape plants, my commercial ones, but to go into a nursery and think that I know everything, I don't. But what I do know is exhibition work and how to storytell and how to research. And so it gave, it made me comfortable accepting what I was good at and saying, hey, you know what? I need help over there and I want you to shine. Like, how can we work together? Um, so that's how that all went down. That is beautiful. Well, and you know, it's such a lesson of plants too. Mm -hmm. Like they are that generous and that abundant with us. And if we can see 
as you have uh, our own ancestry or history in some way and the plants in front of us, like it does change your mindset. And as you are doing this work, you are literally repopulating what we understand horticultural history to be the same way Leah Penniman has done it, the same way Jamaica Kincaid has done it. And you are adding this next layer so that we see people in these places and we see, we know their names and we know what they accomplished. And it it changes, literally changes the field as we understand it. So I believe that this kind of research is currently being molded into a book. Am I right about that, Abra? You are. And I I don't know if I was working on that book in 2019. I am still working on it. And I am okay saying that I have had, um, I've lived, you know, being an adult is hard. So as as the world of public gardens has been to me and, and people like, um, and I have to say her name, um, because as much as I was speaking about Longwood, I know that 100% of the reason I'm there is because of Mary Lynn Mack, the COO of South Coast Botanic Garden, believing in me and encouraging me to tell my story and to be myself in that interview and not hold back. So I must say that when I talk about lifting um, and and other women who who put you there. Um, Mm. And I, I say that because what I wasn't expecting, like no one was, was COVID. I wasn't expecting to end up being a caregiver for my mother who lives with me full time. And I'm so happy that she's with me. And I wasn't expecting um, the grind that it is to work for yourself for two and a half years and really um, seeing how it, it you can lose yourself a bit, right? Because it's, I have, for lack of better words, they say you eat what you kill. I think that's how the saying goes. So having to kind of accept everything and not knowing when to say no, not knowing and recognizing what burnout was. And I'm saying all this because Timber Press, my publisher, has been beyond gracious and believing. They said, you know, the book is in you and you're going to get it written. And mm-hmm. with these these stories, these love stories, they have been with me through these years as I've worked through that. Um, and I'm I'm grateful. I'm grateful that I think that what I'm I'm trying to say is that in America, we're used to got to get it now, do it now, post it quick. You got to be the first or else you you're a loser, right? Somebody else beat you to it. And their attitude is, you know what, Abra, you've lived this life. You are these people. You can say this when you're ready to say it. And um, they've been gracious and they've allowed me to write at my pace. And I am 100% sure that when the book is released, it will be well worth the wait and it will be exactly what the words need to be at the time that they need to be said. Yeah, yeah. Any working title? The title of the book is Conquer the Soil, Black America and the Untold Story of Our Country's Farmers, Gardeners, and Growers. This is Cultivating Place. Abra Lee is an accomplished horticulturalist, scholar, consultant, and horticultural love storyteller under the name of Conquer the Soil. Stay with us. We'll be back for more with Abra on her Black Garden History class at Auburn University, receiving top awards at the Philadelphia Flower Show and her collaboration with Talia Boone of Postal Petals on the Botanic Garden Extravaganza known as Music and Flowers. We'll be back. Stay with us.
Hey, so if we learned a lot of Apple names in history in last week's program with Jude Schoenemeyer, we are learning a whole lot of great black growers names and history in this episode with Abra Lee. You know, I had the truly great joy of walking the Oakland Cemetery in downtown Atlanta with Abra just two weekends ago with her predecessor and mentor in the director of horticulture position, the acclaimed Sarah Henderson, and with Oakland Hort staff members, Cooper Sanchez, Butch Teal, and Jana Roden. I couldn't help but be so impressed by the scope and goals of this beautiful and historically laden public green space and the caliber of the staff that the city of Atlanta and the Oakland Historic Cemetery Foundation has dedicated to the care and the uplifting of this space and its history in the world. I can't not simultaneously be saddened by the diminishing of such similar gardens and care in the old city cemetery of Sacramento, California, where for decades there was a gorgeous perennial plant garden tended to by the Sacramento Perennial Plant Society, a garden which was for many years overseen by dedicated plantswoman Sharon Patrician. Also in the cemetery were great gardens tended to by the Sacramento Rose Society and more tended to by the Sacramento chapter of the California Native Plant Society. And yet, these gardens that welcome thousands of people and no doubt other life in an open access public space were significantly cut back and diminished through city ordinances since 2020 to now. This loss is a signifier, no doubt, as to what we as humans, as communities, and as a generalized U.S. culture value, and what we show that we value in the where we put our time, where we put our money, where we put our love. It is a reminder to all of us plants people who love gardens and gardening and plants it is a reminder to us to support and applaud all of those humans who are working for plant places we value. And it is a reminder to vote with our voices, our dollars, our time, and our all of our other resources for these very same values. These gardens and the legacies of these garden people like Sarah Henderson and Abra Lee and Sharon Patrician, these are our love stories, past, present, and future. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. We're back now to our conversation with horticulturalist and scholar Abra Lee. As we come back, Abra takes us to her experience teaching a Black garden history class for graduate students in landscape architecture at Auburn University, and how their show garden design based on the work of the Harlem Renaissance writer and gardener Effie Lee Newsom took five top awards at last year's Philadelphia Flower Show. 
it's a public garden, it's a public park, it's a place of the celebration of yeah. life. In I want to say maybe November of 2021, um, the Pennsylvania Horticulture Society reached out to me, Hannah and Seth, shout out to Hannah and Seth at uh, PHS, and said, hey, Abra, we are doing a, um, a flower show next year. It'll be outdoors again for the second year, and our theme is in bloom, and we would love if you um, may want to collaborate as one of our invited designers on a display, and I said, well, 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 I am not a designer, but guess what? I am teaching a course in Black Garden History at uh, for the graduate landscape architecture students at Auburn University. And how about I teach the the stories and they do the design and Hannah and Seth said, let's go. Yeah. And I was brought into Auburn through uh, the associate professor, my good friend, David Hill, who hired me and believed in me and felt like he wanted his students, these graduates. Do I don't have a graduate degree. I literally failed out of Auburn and went back to graduate. So guess what, y'all? You can live your dreams and go back <laughs> and teach a college course, even with those bumps in the road. Yeah. Um, and David Hill hired me to, to teach some of the stories that I mentioned earlier, like the Bessie Weaver and the Blanche King Hurston. And with that, the students... Um, decided for that in full bloom they wanted to use the story of a woman named Effie Lee Newsom who is a Harlem Renaissance writer uh, Harlem Renaissance specifically nature writer for children um and her book of poetry Gladiola Garden that was released in 1942 I believe as the inspiration mm. and the reason they chose Effie Lee Newsom out of all the people we discussed because we discussed legendary architects that came out of Tuskegee and for folks that don't have context Auburn and Tuskegee are on the same road, 15 miles from each other. The house that George Washington Carver built is right there. So they chose Effie Lee Newsom for a few reasons. Number one, she was born in Philadelphia and she lived there until the age of seven. And the row houses in the potted plants of Philadelphia outside those row houses had influence on her life. And number two, she spent part of her life in Alabama in Montgomery and her mother was from Mobile. And when she married, she spent time in Montgomery and in Birmingham. And at one point she wrote an essay about Selma and some of the, the, the flora that she saw on the journey mm. through Alabama. So there was a real connection there. Yeah. Um, and with this book, she uses poetry. She uses words. She uses nature specifically in the 1940s at the height of the Jim Crow era so that black and brown children will see that the beauty in themselves is only equivalent to that in nature and allowing them to be children and let them know it's okay to be a child and not have to, um, for lack of better words, and I hope this is received with love from your audience, concern yourself with the Jim Crow. You're five. You get to be five and love flowers and not have to worry about lynchings and the civil, well, at the time, the civil rights movement hadn't technically uh, been named, but just recognizing that children deserve that level of joy. And with that, the students created this beautiful display um, with um, a, what they call a viewfinder, which was new to me. I learned something from the landscape architects. These nine students, Taylor, Lily, Dustin, Sadie, Rob, Emily, Vera, I want to say Trey and Alex um, created these viewfinders and through these five different viewfinders in these different colors, they placed plants and they also placed the words and poetry of Effie Lee Newsom. So it was really a display that could be viewed by adults, but they also made sure that the viewfinders were low enough where toddlers and children could look through it. And it was a very focused gaze on the work. 
And very, very. It was so effective. Oh, it was beautiful. It was so good. And I got to tell you, so, so I'll, I'll get to this point, but it's so exciting because I want to say a few things. Um, These students built this coming from Alabama, y'all. This was the first time I think that there was uh, college students, let alone from the South and the PHS, Pennsylvania Horticulture Society, Philadelphia Flower Show. This is the oldest flower show, older than Chelsea um, in the world. And they came and won, they were, uh, they won five awards, including a gold medal. And that is how well their work was received. And we were beside ourselves. And when the students, so some of the students, you got to remember, they had just graduated. So some of them are working, some of them are taking their last vacation. They're probably going to take of 20 years because we know being an adult is hard. And the three that were there, there the day that the awards were called out, we're in a tent. It's Pennsylvania horticulture, very high level. The champagne is coming out and they call their name and we lose it. We just run up there like the price is right. And, you know, <laughs> can't believe it. High five and hugging, oh. being so country. And I said, y'all, welcome to the top. Do not forget this feeling. You are starting your career as an award winning graduate landscape architect. Like no one can take that for a five time award winning one at that. So right, right, right. that company right. that hired me. And <laughs> what I also want to say about these students, which is important, the dynamic nine, and I called them that from day one, Jennifer. I knew they were dynamic. And I said, look, we sh this is what we do. Like we, we show up to win in life and they believed it and they trusted me on this journey, knowing good and well, I didn't have any business being a real professor like David, like David Hill. And with that, I say this because these nine students were all non-Black students. They understood the privilege that they were experiencing to learn these incredible stories about Black American history. And they understood that they now had a responsibility to go out in the world and share these stories, these yeah. love stories, and teach others and let people know who Effie Lee Newsom was. And we were able to eat. The students met with Jerry Lee, who is the niece of Effie Lee Newsom, who remembered her aunt and came to the show and oh. not only gave the students their her blessing to go forward with the project, but came to the show with her wife, Gail, and loved it and saw it. And I was like, y'all, you can't beat this. When, you can't. Oh. When, when the people who who matter the most, the family, uh, the, uh, the descendants of these people say you've done well. So yeah. it was... I, I still get excited about it. And honestly, I'm thinking, man, I had some down months in the fall. I should have been thinking about Mixed Shades, Much Joy, <laughs> which was the name of the garden. And that was based on um, one of the poems of Effie Lee Newsom. So again, um, the Dynamic Nine at Auburn, Professor David Hill, just showing that it it's, um, what do they say? I guess I've heard this term. It's not your setback, it's your comeback. So even David yeah. saying, you know what? I saw your transcript. It's horrible, and I don't care. Come teach these students. Transcript doesn't matter. You've had 20 years in the game. You've done a lot of things, and we want to hear from you. Um, yeah. So Auburn just recognizing that education isn't only um, in a box and, right. and, and ticked off by, I spent 10 years studying a thing. They also understood that you can live that thing, and that is important to share out in the world. Abra, I am just so happy that I got to see that garden at all. And it was kind of a fluke that I did because I was traveling between Virginia and New York. And I was going to meet up with Womboy to see her display garden at the flower show. But I didn't know you were going to be there. 
when Wambui met us and got us into the showgrounds, she had to leave because the judges were just starting to make their rounds in the gardens, and so she wasn't allowed to be there. And while John and I were walking around, we came upon your exhibit, having no idea you were involved in it, but we were completely drawn in, looking through the guides, reading the poetic excerpts, admiring that really arresting contrast of colors and forms, and the way your gaze really was directed. And then I read the sign and saw that you were their teacher. I just wanted to burst into tears, Abra. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. When I talked about people uh, lifting you, a few things about, or two things I do want to mention, as I mentioned with Mary Lynn Mack um, Mm -hmm. creating that door for me, I have to thank my good friend and just incredible horticulturist, plants, woman, environmentalist, designer, Wamboy Ippolito, who talked to the students before they went to PHS. She is the first person of color, Black woman to win the grand trophy there. And she won it, I believe that was in 2021. Mm -hmm. But talking to the students and giving them the confidence to say, hey, you know what? I know y'all are 20, 21, 22, maybe 23, 30 years old. You deserve to be here. And you own this moment, take this moment, you know, helping them understand how to have confidence in their design, showing up and cheering for them at the show. And then also, again, Longwood, where we get up there and something's blooming in the South. We think we got it. You get up North and guess what? It's not even going to be ready for eight weeks in Longwood saying, you know what? We got you. Not only are we going to make sure that we support you and help you with plants, we would not have made it to that show without Longwood stepping in and providing the funding for us to come all the way from Alabama to Philadelphia. Oh, um, and well we're done. talking about 12 people, I think, at least yeah. nine, 10, myself and David. So I, I'm just saying that that's how you pay it forward. And I'm saying yep. this out loud because they would never say this about themselves. Longwood, Womboy, Jerry Lee, um, Mary Lynn, but people need to hear the things that people do silently uh, to lift others. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And of course, both Mary Lynn and Wambui have been guests on the program before. And so I hope people go back and listen to those stories as well. Um, all right, take us to your, you know, that that is such a like apex moment right there. But take us to the work you've been doing with Music and Flowers. Tell us about this project because it's really innovative. And so um, it's just so like, I don't know, joyful and and festive. Talk about this. It is. I worked as a co-producer of a, an exhibition for the South Coast Botanic Garden in September of 2022. And I worked with a woman named Talia Boone, who is so dynamic. Her company yeah. is called Postal Petals. We met through Deborah Prinzing, who was hosting the Slow Flowers Symposium at Filoli in June of 2021. Yep, And that was really my first trip back outside and since I left V-Laundry in, I think, March of or, or February of 2020. And with that, I, I, I gave a talk on uh, Black women in floriculture and in history. Talia and I connected. She had had in her mind about doing an exhibit to uplift Black women and flowers. And I had in my mind to do the same thing. And I didn't, w- one thing that really stuck with me was Bessie Weaver and this, uh, the, the woman I mentioned was the first uh, black florist west of the Mississippi and her giving this speech in 1915 to a group of black women at what was called the National Negro League Convention at the time. And 
speaking to them and encouraging them not only to grow their own flowers, but to save their money and to open a florist business. And she was willing to teach them how to do it. And one thing she said in her speech, it's a beautiful speech, but one thing that stood out to me, she said, our people have always been lovers of music and flowers. And so that's how we came up with the the title of this exhibition. And I know Beautiful, you said music yeah. by flowers or music ex flowers. It was just symbolism and a nod to horticulture and floriculture, how you know, you cross hybridize, people come together. So that's why even though there's an X there, it's just a nod to the 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 breeding profession and, and how uh, things come together lovely. And we call it music and flowers. And with that, Mary Lynn Mack gave to Leah and I an opportunity. She was a person that put her money where her mouth is. She got the support, the financial support of her garden to give us a budget to produce this one-day floricultural event in Los Angeles. And with that, we worked with Valerie Cristosimo from Black Girl Florist, and we were able to um, bring together seven Black women florists from California, mostly from the Los Angeles area. And the theme was um, Los Angeles hip-hop. And, and, and its impact um, on L.A. and also flowers being a way to storytell and communicate. And that's what Music and Flowers was about. And also, um, Talia, with her company, Postal Pedals, wellness is important to her and, and self-care. And so having floral arrangement, having self-guided meditation that day, having a DJ, having... Um, the fun part where you have a flower bomb, they call it low rider, I believe, or uh, old school out there in California. I think I call it low rider. They call it an old school. Uh, Talia was telling me having floral fashion um, with people like Ashley, um, Amaret did the the low rider. And yeah. with these, these seven black women who were flower designers, there were people who came to this exhibition in September and ended up hiring these women for other work. So again, that nice. way to pay it forward and to be a queen maker is really what you want to do before yeah. you leave planet earth, if you can. <laughs> and that is what that was. And to Leah, I have to credit her because that was her crew in out LA that showed up, you know, we weren't in Atlanta and it was a haul and I had to leave to go do a speaking engagement while we're putting this thing together on site and she held it down. So it, People, if they go online and look up music and flowers and look at some yeah. of the pictures, I'll send you some, Jennifer. So I mean, they're gorgeous. Yeah, yeah, they're beautiful. It was beautiful. incredible. And maybe are there other events like this in the making? Yes, we are planning a music and flowers, the second iteration of it in the, I want to say the first Sunday in June at okay. South Coast Botanic Garden. Okay. The date is escaping me, but it is the first Sunday in June. And we will continue with that theme. And What's interesting is that there's such a push, understandable push for the diversity and inclusion now. And Talia and I are proof that if you create a dope event, people going to show up. People love beautiful, fun, cool yep. things where they can just be themselves. And there was all cultures, all communities. It was multi-generational, multicultural, multi-gender, and they stayed all day long. So yeah. it is permission for public gardens to push themselves out of the safety zone and say, yeah, we really can honor Nipsey Hustle with flowers, with lowriders, with a DJ, with some old English on the table and some crates that Kristen did and have people come into our garden and want to come back the next day. So it's just about believing it can happen and, and most importantly, executing it. Yeah. Well, and just there are so many things, you know, which we've, we've hit on too in this conversation, Abra, that 
we have to take seriously and that are grave and that are so earnest and can be so overwhelming or depressing, but there is also so much joy and it's embodied in music, in flowers, in all of us in some way. And so to lean into that is, I just think it's one of the great gifts of of what we do in these times as plants people um, coming together and germinating a new way to go towards solutions. For sure, for sure. And I have to say shameless plug because I'm thinking about it. If another public garden that hears uh, this podcast wants to sponsor music and flowers, or if there's a corporate sponsor or um, any of your listeners attendant, let's do it. We want to take this show on the road. It yes. is, it is, you, look, you want to see this in person. If you yeah. thought Mick Shades much as Joy was popping, wait till you see music and flowers. I promise you. <laughs> okay, I promise good. you. It's next level. All right. Well, maybe I'll have to just drive my, my body down there um, and see uh, it in person in June. Um, and I'm so happy to hear that it is moving forward and I'll have to, you know, at some point reach out to Talia and uh, get her to share her story. But before then, take us to to this final pathway we'll be able to explore. And I know it's not, this is not the only one, but this is such a culmination of all of the knowledge and passion that you bring together. You're stepping into the horticultural directorship at the Oakland Cemetery. Tell us about the sort of genesis story of you you doing this and, and what your role will be there and why is that important horticulturally? I, I know that's a big like three-part question right there, but we'll we'll keep touching base as you go along. It's it's okay. It is it goes back to living in your purpose. So when I mentioned earlier in this talk that my dad was director of parks for City of Atlanta, Oakland yeah. Cemetery is a City of Atlanta public park. So mm. when he was parks director and he would make his rounds on the weekend when I wasn't in Barnesville, Oakland Cemetery was one of the places that I would ride through with him. So it is a real full circle moment in my life to work for the historic Oakland Foundation, which is responsible for the stewardship of this beautiful Victorian garden cemetery smack down in the middle of downtown Atlanta, 48 acres, um, founded in 1850. So it is one of the few things, and I mean few, you can count them on one hand, if not three fingers, that survived the Civil War in Atlanta that was not burned to the ground in 1864. And Oakland truly tells the story of the South. There is um, the story of the early wealth of Atlanta, the street names. You see these names in the cemetery of what we lovingly call the residents. You're just like, oh, that's where Howell came from, uh, Howell Mill Road or Austell, which is a, a, another city in Atlanta. You, you see these mausoleums, these beautiful Victorian mausoleums. You also see the Jewish section and uh, speaking to these Jewish immigrants coming to Atlanta in the 1800s at a time when people don't necessarily think about that as part of our history. Um, the African-American section where there are founders of uh, Morris Brown HBCU there, of Alpha Kappa Alpha Sorority um, wow. there. And then also we have to be real, it's the South, the Confederate section. The, it is a, the good, the bad, the ugly. That is the story, the complicated. That is yeah. the story that is told at Oakland. And I mentioned that it is a beautiful Victorian garden cemetery, which means that it is modeled after uh, places like the famous Mount Auburn right. Cemetery. So at the time, during that time in America, it was the city's responsibility to bury its residents. And 
it was used as a public park and a public space and people would come and garden on the weekends, picnic, be there with their ancestors. And so it is, it is something like you would feel like, am I in Paris or am I in Savannah or New Orleans? It is a world <laughs> away in the middle of Atlanta. And I was able to come into this role. This is my second week on the job. Wow. A woman Congratulations. Is, Yay. Thank you. A woman who has been a friend and mentor to me, a woman named Sarah Henderson, um, just has embraced me, has shown me the ropes. And what I mean by that, her incredible plant record, she was the first. And honestly, she is a legend of Southern horticulture. She was the first director of horticulture at Oakland Cemetery. And she has certainly given me her blessing to now take that baton from her and make sure that Oakland is recognized and is elevated as one of the great gardens of the world as it should be because the plant collection and the palettes that she has put together under her leadership, I think over the past decade and a half are stunning. And I can't wait for you to come to Atlanta to see it. And in the executive director, uh, the I'm sorry, we'll cut this part. The executive director, Richard Harker of, of Oakland Cemetery that brought me in and Neil, my boss, who was the senior um, uh, director of uh, preservation. So really helping me to understand the art and architecture and really believing in what Oakland can be and not just be this best kept secret in Atlanta, but to be a gym in the world, like a long, Longwood, we coming for you. We are coming to sit at the table <laughs> with you, okay? Not coming to take from you, but to be there at the table and show when you were small and mighty, what you can do on our 48 acres. So wow, 48 um, acres. Yeah. It's 48 acres. It is, it it it's a true southern plant palette. It is um, I think about this one area there, Bobby Jones, if if anyone's ever heard of the Masters uh, in Augusta National Golf Course. And that's a course that he worked to design and in and, and his area where he is buried there, his final resting place. Sarah taking a lot of that plant palette and letting the influence be Fruitland Nurseries, which ended up becoming Augusta National. And it oh, was a wow. nursery back then. Yes. Oh, so that's great. Even that level of story, right up my alley, storytelling and plants. Yeah. And when Richard and Neil spoke to me about the job at Oakland, I was thinking, I can't take this job. I'm working for myself. I'm caregiving for my mama. And when I went, and I knew I always had love for Oakland just from childhood, but when you go on the website and you type in oaklandcemetery.com, the first thing that comes up is history and gardens. Literally, that is the first thing. That, it's big white bowl and it rises in front of you the way the words conquer the soil rose off that page. I mean, I said, this is it. I am home. So you are absolutely right, Jennifer. This probably is my last stop on the job train. And I mean that because after being in airports, after being a student worker in a greenhouse, after working with the Dynamic Nine and working with Talia at South Coast, I feel like this is a horticulture hall of fame career. And I say that with love because I'm like, I cannot believe this has been my journey. And now I'm at Oakland as a director of horticulture and I literally get to live my purpose, history and gardens. And that is, y'all are paying me for this. I would have signed up for this as a volunteer. And I mean that. So <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. It really is. And um, I cannot wait to see where this goes. I can't either. And I know you're only two weeks on the job, but you know, as you're looking at it, give us a sense of uh, how many gardeners do you have with you? And and do you, for this 48 hour, uh, acres, which as you've already indicated, has been, you know, well overseen and documented, what are some of your goals with your team for, um, 
for maintenance, for innovation, for for anything. With with Oakland Cemetery, it is a public-private partnership. That's how it was when I was a landscape manager at an airport. So, and what I mean by that is that Oakland, as I mentioned, is a city of Atlanta Park. I work for the historic Oakland Foundation. So I do have a team in Jana, Butch, Wes, Iron, uh, Sean, and um, Sarah, who who is our, our big boss. And with that group of gardeners, designers, um, Cooper, Brian, some of the contractors that work with me, Peter, um, Jennifer, I think about how it is a real team effort, which means you got to be on the same page with the parks department. You got to be on the same page with the contractors, uh, such as a Cooper Sanchez, who is a Southern uh, legendary horticulturist himself. You have to be on the same page with the historic Oakland Foundation team and the work that Jana and Sarah and Wes and Butch have all put in and iron and and learn from them and listen to them and know that they've created this from nothing and that you're saying, you know what? I love you've done all this work and I'm not here to tell you how to steer your ship with plants. What I am here is to arouse enthusiasm in you and keep that enthusiasm and rouse and ensure that if I don't leave here and I will certainly die trying to ensure that this is considered one of the great gardens of the world, that your work is worthy of that. And we're not just saying that lightly. These are real collections. And mm-hmm. what we know it takes to grow that is money, real money. And, and speaking to the public and helping them understand why history and gardens should be important to their community, even with the Confederate soldiers buried in the middle of all this, right? Yeah. And that it takes real eight-figure, nine-figure money to make sure that we're able to keep these gardens from the 1850s alive, which mm-hmm. many really don't exist in the United States. So right. my goal is to make sure that we are able to invest in this uh, in, in perpetuity. We are able to establish a real endowment in uh, the Oakland Cemetery Gardens and its team. We are able to carry on the legacy and, and the legend of Sarah Henderson and her work. We are elevate. We are able to sit at the table with Bee Laundry and Longwood and Chanticleer and South Coast and hold our own and say, we're not trying to be you. We're special in our own way. How can we all work together to make sure that Beauty is appreciated as not this luxury thing, but as something that is important as clean water and fresh air is, is to people. It it changes their life on a daily basis. Um, So there's so many, it's, it's important to tell the story of the South, to tell the story of Atlanta. So Oakland um, and the first black mayor, Maynard Jackson, who hired my dad as director of parks is also, that's his final rest in place, which is really important. And I say that because Oakland, there is no ceiling on what can be done there. We aren't thinking like that. And from day one, I said, y'all, two things are going to happen here. Everybody's going to win. And I mean that. And this is not participation trophy. I mean, what does it take for all of us to win? What does it take for Cooper to be happy, for Abra to be happy, for Richard to be happy, for Neil to be happy, for Sarah to be happy? And we will be one of the great gardens of the world. That's our mission. And it is, we've cranked it up in our brains in two short weeks. They were doing a great job. And now I'm like, we are doing a world-class outstanding job and they are believing the hype about themselves as they should. And I'm I'm just saying, just come, come see it for yourself. And it's free, y'all. It's open 365 days out the year. So please come support it. How, how, who can access that level of beauty for free? It's on public transportation. It is two blocks from the MARTA train in Atlanta, which is saying a lot because we aren't known for our public transportation. So <laughs> I want people to see it because I want them to understand the financial investment it takes to 
build and continue a legacy like Oakland's um, yeah. and what they can find in the beauty and the art and the architecture. So it just, it, it's worth the hype. It really is. And pictures do not do it justice. Okay. We, we've got another field trip on the books. So as we're ending, if I were to ask you three really strong or outstanding plant individual plants or plant families there at Oakland Cemetery that you want people to know more about uh, because of their importance to you? What would those be, Abra? I would start with the name, Oakland Cemetery. It was Atlanta Municipal Cemetery. And one of the early, um, I can't remember if it was the Sexton or the horticulturists there decided we need to, this is a Victorian Garden Cemetery and we want to name it as such. And they called it Oakland. And in the mid-2000s, Oakland lost, I believe it was 100 oak trees due to a tornado in downtown Atlanta. So certainly the mighty oak, the okay. the, the the oak tree that has been very uh, present in, in, in Southern stories, Southern horticulture. Second, the camellias, the, the beautiful area mm. of Bobby Jones, the area that Sarah has curated. So it can be part of the camellia trail with the American Camellia Society. And then I think third for me, just because it's on my brain, I say this, the bulbs, because I think of the, the, and, and maybe I should, okay, I'll say the bulbs and I'll explain why. So it's maybe a third, a 3.1, but I say the bulbs because Oakland is beautiful in the winter, the spring, the summer, the fall, you see the four seasons of the year. And you can see that not just through the bulbs, just through the well curated landscape that these gardeners have put their heart into and we have so much more to do and, and we just need the financial investment to do it. So the the ephemeral part that comes with horticulture, that's not a plant and understanding and appreciating the winter, the the beauty there, the stillness of Oakland, the vibrancy of spring, the yeah, it's hot and sweaty in the summer, but boy, is this still gorgeous. And then the fall, which is also stunning. So I think just going through those periods of your life all in one year at Oakland is it's like a merry-go-round I love it thank you so much for being a guest on the program today it has been a joy to talk to you again Abra thank you thank you Jennifer I appreciate you and I cannot wait to see you Abra Lee is an accomplished horticulturalist, scholar, and graduate of the Longwood Fellows Program in Public Horticulture. She is a consultant under the name of Conquer the Soil and now the Director of Horticulture at Oakland Cemetery, a richly historied garden cemetery in downtown Atlanta. Abra's book, Conquer the Soil, Black America and the Untold Stories of Our Country's Gardeners, Farmers and Growers will be published by Timber Press in the not-too-distant future. of plants and place this week, we focus not so much on plants as on working with plants, specifically invasive plants and their removal, courtesy of listener and gardener Claire Darley and courtesy of Brooke Thompson and Joshua Chenoweth of the Klamath River Revegetation Planning for Post-Dam Removal on the Klamath River. 
Claire wrote in, concerned that there was an unspoken and uninterrogated wide-scale use of foliar herbicides on this large restoration project in order to get invasive plants under control. When asked, here was the very useful and thoughtful invasive plant removal protocols on this project. Our invasive species removal program is indeed a careful integration of multiple methods that are all species specific and adaptively managed based on results we see in the field. As Brooke explained, our philosophy on herbicide use is that it is a last resort and is used at low concentrations applied by hand, never from vehicles or aircraft, and it is applied close to target plants to avoid non-target impacts and before flowering to avoid pollinator impacts. On this revegetation project, our most common invasive plant removal and control methods are as follows. First, mowing. Using string trimmers, we mow approximately three times during the growing season to control cheatgrass and medusa head, both invasive grasses. This method prevents these annual species from seeding, and over time, maybe two to three years, the seed bank is exhausted and these species are reduced in abundance significantly. Number two, grubbing or physically pulling plants, roots and all. This is done in mowing areas around important native species so that mowers don't inadvertently mow them. This method is also used to clean up after mowing late in the season when plants are small, trying to escape mowing, but they are flowering. There are also several species that we primarily grub, including dyer's woad, teasel, scotch thistle, musk thistle, and puncture vine. A few of these species are sometimes too abundant to efficiently grub. In those situations, we use herbicide. Third protocol, we deadhead. In some situations, we machete, mow deadhead, teasel to prevent flowering that year. This species is a biennial and constant deadheading can prevent future infestations. And finally, we use herbicide. This is only used for species that cannot be effectively grubbed or mowed. Those species are all perennials that have deep, widespread root systems that escape grubbing, even with heavy equipment. Our primary target with herbicide is Himalayan blackberry. When we are using herbicide on Himalayan blackberry, the canes are cut, and mulched, and the new cut stumps are painted or sponged with herbicide. This is a very effective method that uses very little herbicide and no spraying, and directly kills the plant with minimal spread to soil, water, and other plant species. All of these methods are often repeated during the growing season, so they include grubbing, mowing, and deadheading, and they require multiple years of dedicated treatment and labor. 
that is the end of Joshua's information for us on this. But as we gardeners face the tedious and ongoing process of trying to get a hold over invasive plants, please remember these thorough, many-stepped, and patient processes modeled by the Yurok tribe's care along their sacred Klamath River. Join us again next week when we continue our celebration of Valentine's Day and African American Heritage Month and the growing season in conversation with Bonita Adib of Ujama Seed Collective and Nathan Kleinman of the Experimental Farm Network. They are growers, breeders, activists, and inspiring souls. Listen in. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio, a service of CAP Radio, licensed to Chico State Enterprises. Cultivating Place is made possible in part by listeners just like you, through the support button at the top right-hand corner of every page at cultivatingplace.com. And don't forget, donating is loving. The program is also made possible through the loving generosity of the Caddo Shaw Foundation. The Cultivating Place team includes producer and engineer Matt Fiddler with weekly tech and web support from Angel Haracha. We're based on the traditional and present homelands of the Machupta Indian tribe of the Chico Rancheria. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the loving cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.